You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 188 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last episode, we worked at setting the stage for the Battle of Antietam by talking about what all happened on Monday, September 15th, 1862 in the aftermath of the fighting for South Mountain. Yep, as you guys will recall, we said that Harper's Ferry finally surrendered to Stonewall Jackson on the 15th, and so Robert E. Lee decided that in order to try to salvage something of his campaign after all, he'd make a stand at Sharpsburg with the forces he had on hand and wait there for Stonewall to come up and join him and James Longstreet and D.H. Hill there. Meanwhile, the Union Army, most of it, was advancing from South Mountain toward Sharpsburg, where it ran into the new Confederate defensive position behind Antietam Creek. As y'all recall, we said George McClellan was thrown for a bit of a loop by this development, since he hadn't expected to have to do anything more on Monday than shepherd the supposedly defeated rebels back across the Potomac as they retreated in panic from northern soil. Yeah, by all logic, in Little Mac's mind, he should be seeing merely a rebel rear guard across the way, left behind to protect the main body of Confederate troops as it hurried to get across the Potomac. But instead, there was General Lee, defiant and in apparent strength, on the far side of the Antietam. As we said last time, Little Mac was never at his best when confronted with the unexpected, and there, on Monday afternoon, was something totally unexpected. It was the kind of thing that, to a general like George McClellan, required careful further thought. And accordingly, he made up his mind that, as he later said, it was too late to attack that day. And so on Monday afternoon, rather than adapt, improvise, and overcome, George McClellan instead decided that tomorrow would be soon enough to figure out what to do with the troublesome presence of that enemy force drawn up over on the far side of the Antietam. In his book, The Gleam of Bayonets, The Battle of Antietam and Robert E. Lee's Maryland Campaign, James Murphan writes, quote, the morning of the 16th came quietly. The only sounds were distant bugles and the rumblings of wagons. A heavy mist hung over the valley of the Antietam, hiding the Confederate positions from view. 
McClellan was inclined to believe that Lee had withdrawn and telegraphed his wife that he believed he had already delivered Pennsylvania and Maryland from the enemy's hands. At 7 a.m., he sent a message to Halleck, saying, This morning a heavy fog has thus far prevented us doing more than to ascertain that some of the enemy are still there. Do not know in what force. We'll attack as soon as situation of enemy is developed. After the unexpected setback on Monday afternoon of finding Lee drawn up in seeming force on the far side of the Antietam, George McClellan was obviously half-hoping that when he awakened on Tuesday morning, he would find that the Confederates across the way had retreated after all. But rather than belatedly following the script that Little Mac had drawn up for them in his mind, it was found, after the heavy fog had burned off on Tuesday morning, that the rebels had again refused to cooperate and were still there. As we indicated in the last episode, by failing to attack Lee on Monday afternoon, McClellan had lost an opportunity to rout a major part of the Confederate Army before Stonewall Jackson arrived on the scene. Even on Tuesday morning, when Little Mac had about 40,000 troops close at hand and Lee still only had perhaps 15,000, an all-out attack by the Federals would likely have broken or at least compromised Lee's defensive line to such a degree that the rebels would have been compelled to retreat. McClellan on Tuesday morning told Henry Halleck back in Washington that he would, quote, attack as soon as situation of enemy is developed, end quote. But in reality, Little Mac made zero preparations for an attack that day. Instead, on September 16th, Little Mac's unreasonable caution and unrealistic estimate of Confederate numbers would once again lead him to miss an opportunity. During the day on Tuesday, September 16th, McClellan would have almost all of his force concentrated within easy supporting distance of the Antietam Creek position. Only William Franklin's 6th Corps would be missing. It was still over in Pleasant Valley on Tuesday, watching for any Confederate move from that direction. In his book, Long Road to Antietam, Richard Slotkin writes, quote, Lee's army was still divided, with most of Jackson's wing at Harper's Ferry, 17 miles away by the shortest marching route. Whether this situation gave McClellan a tactical advantage or put his army in danger depended on the size of the two Confederate forces. Jackson was the wild card. From Harper's Ferry, it could either march to join Lee, strike through Pleasant Valley to attack McClellan's flank, or attempt some combination of these two maneuvers. Slotkin continues, quote, If Lee's force was weak enough, an attack by McClellan's available force might drive it from the field before Jackson could come to its aid. But if it was strong enough to hold its ground, Jackson's arrival, especially if it took the form of a powerful flank attack, might catch McClellan's army between anvil and hammer. Little Mac mistakenly thought that Lee and Longstreet had at least 30,000 men at Sharpsburg, and that Stonewall had between forty and 50,000 at Harper's Ferry. McClellan estimated he himself had about 45,000 troops immediately on hand on Tuesday with which to attack Lee. Little Mac knew that the Union Army's artillery reserve, with its powerful long-range guns, would come up early in the morning and by noon could be positioned on the high ground east of the Antietam to suppress the rebel artillery across the creek. 
There was also another 15,000 federal troops still marching down from the South Mountain Passes, but they wouldn't reach the Antietam until late Tuesday afternoon or early evening, which would probably be too late to be of any real use in a general assault that day. But, as was mentioned just a moment ago, Stonewall Jackson, in McClellan's calculations, was the wild card as far as any plans Little Mac might draw up for an attack on Tuesday. Before McClellan could safely commit his main force to attack Lee, he had to determine, now that Harper's Ferry had fallen, where Jackson's forces were and how they were moving. If McClellan's estimates of Confederate strength were accurate, it was possible that overnight Jackson might have sent Lee enough reinforcements so that Lee's numbers would match Little Mac's 45,000 on Tuesday morning. Stonewall could have conceivably done that while still retaining enough strength at Harper's Ferry to march north through Pleasant Valley and challenge Franklin's VI Corps. Actually, only two of Jackson's infantry divisions would reach Lee at Sharpsburg on September 16th, and they were footsore and hungry and weary after a 17-mile night march from Harper's Ferry. On the 16th, McClellan would ultimately have nearly 60,000 troops on hand, while even with Stonewall's arrival, Lee's force couldn't have numbered much more than 25,000, if that. But after spending Tuesday morning reconnoitering the ground and evaluating the enemy's dispositions and considering his options, McClellan took no steps to prepare for an attack that day. And in fact, shortly after 12 noon, he circulated orders scheduling the assault for the next day. Jacob Cox was in command of the Ninth Corps after Reno's mortal wounding at Fox's Gap. Cox later said he, quote, confidently expected a battle, end quote, on September 16th, but instead the Federals passed the day in tedious inaction. Now we share all of that to show that in reality, by failing to attack on the 15th or 16th, McClellan missed a golden opportunity to inflict a defeat on Lee's army. But reality had very little to do with McClellan's decision-making process at Antietam. That is to say that Little Mac's inaction on Tuesday was sensible and prudent if, if his assumptions about the strength of the enemy were correct, and if his fears about Stonewall Jackson's possible flanking movement were reasonable. We know, of course, that McClellan's assumptions about Confederate numbers were incorrect, and his fears about Pleasant Valley were unfounded, And so when all was said and done, Little Mac wasted September 16th by doing nothing to strike at the enemy force that faced him across the Antietam. Still, it's ironic that by postponing action until Wednesday, the 17th, McClellan actually increased his chances of inflicting a decisive defeat on almost the entire rebel army. You see, by not attacking on Tuesday, Little Mac was able to concentrate just about his entire force for the confrontation with the enemy, and by allowing Jackson's troops to reinforce Lee, and two more divisions from Harper's Ferry would arrive before the fighting began, McClellan would still enjoy a two-to-one superiority in numbers, but on the 17th, he would have nearly the whole of Lee's army in his grasp, rather than just a portion of it.
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. While McClellan's decision not to attack Lee on September 16th has been roundly criticized, Robert E. Lee's decision to fight at Sharpsburg at all has also come in for its fair share of criticism. For example, in an essay on the Antietam campaign, Gary Gallagher bluntly states that, quote, Lee erred badly in choosing to give battle at Sharpsburg, end quote. Gallagher references E. Porter Alexander, the Confederate officer whose military memoirs provide usually astute and insightful commentary on events and personalities during the war. Alexander rated Lee's decision to fight at Sharpsburg his, quote, greatest military blunder, end quote. After all, Lee's back was against the Potomac, with only Bottler's Ford as the Confederates' escape route should a crisis arise. And the unavoidable disparity in numbers at Antietam virtually guaranteed that the rebel army would face desperate combat. Gallagher states that after South Mountain, Lee's decision to fight at Sharpsburg was a mistake, since he, quote, stood to gain not a single military advantage from a battle there. And we would agree with that assessment if if Lee had been facing almost any other enemy general at Antietam. But Lee was facing George McClellan. And in the last episode, we pointed out that Robert E. Lee had a certain cool contempt for his adversary. Lee's experience in facing Little Mac had led him to view the Union commander as cautious and inept. Lee wasn't sure what had caused McClellan to move with uncommon speed to assault the South Mountain Passes, but to Lee, that move seemed out of character for McClellan. By making a stand along the Antietam, Lee was betting that after South Mountain, Little Mac would revert to form, moving with excessive caution and no great skill. But still, one of the salient features of the Maryland campaign, from the Confederate perspective, was the weakened condition of Lee's force due to the hunger and exhaustion of the men and the extreme straggling and disturbing number of desertions that plagued the Army of Northern Virginia during those days in September 1862. Even allowing for Lee's contempt for McClellan 
and his desire after South Mountain to salvage something of his campaign, the wisdom of Lee's decision to offer battle at Antietam can be called into question simply on the grounds that his army was really in no shape to exploit any advantage he might have gained by fighting there. With the fall of Harper's Ferry, E. Porter Alexander later noted that on September 15th, quote, Our whole army was back on the Virginia side of the Potomac except Longstreet's and Hill's divisions. These could have been easily retired across the river, and we would indeed have left Maryland without a great battle, but we would nevertheless have come off with good prestige and a fair lot of prisoners and guns, and lucky on the whole to do this, considering the accident of the lost order. But Robert E. Lee had struck north in an effort to take the war out of Virginia, gather foodstuffs and fodder, and influence foreign opinion in the fall elections in the north, and yes, to draw the Union army into a great battle. And since he was facing George McClellan, that just might still be possible. And so Robert E. Lee would make his stand at Sharpsburg. Lee had crossed the Potomac seeking to initiate a campaign of thrust and maneuver, which he felt would play to his own skills and highlight the enemy's weaknesses. If instead, after the unexpectedly bold Yankee move over South Mountain, he had been forced into fighting this defensive battle at Sharpsburg, well, so be it. Because for Lee, in the end, what counted was the battle and the winning of it. In his book, Landscape Turned Red, Stephen Sears writes, quote, The terrain around Sharpsburg presented a picture seemingly as ordinary as the town itself. A low north-south ridge line along which the Hagerstown Turnpike ran crowned the irregularly shaped peninsula of land between the Potomac and the Antietam, with the ground falling away in most places in gentle folds east and west to the two streams. To federal observers scanning the field from across the Antietam, the variations in the texture of the landscape looked most pronounced south of the town, where broken and wooded hills climbed fairly steeply from the creek to the crest of the ridge. Sharpsburg lay beyond the ridge, with only its church steeples visible. Sears goes on, writing, quote, North of town, the ground seemed flatter and more inviting for maneuver, but the impression was deceptive. The terrain there, wrote a northern war correspondent, was completely deceitful, full of little hollows and rises and stone outcroppings, mostly invisible to McClellan and his generals from their vantage points a mile or two away, and the patchwork pattern of fields and woodlots made it uncommonly hard to calculate what might await an attack. It was harvest time, and while some of the crops had already been gathered, other fields were still thick with corn at its full growth, standing head high. Autumn had not yet touched the Maryland countryside, and the foliage was thick and green. As Lee filled it out on September 16th, the Confederate defensive line was some four miles long, in the shape of an arc running roughly northwest to south. Stonewall Jackson arrived on the scene about noon on Tuesday, with two divisions from Harper's Ferry after what even Stonewall admitted was a, quote, severe march. Robert E. Lee assigned Jackson to command the left of the Confederate line. 
In Jackson's sector, the north-facing portion of the Confederate line was anchored on Nicodemus Heights, which was a modest elevation which took its name from the owner of the nearest farm. The high ground there was held by two brigades of Jeb Stuart's cavalry and the guns of Stuart's horse artillery. At the start of the battle, Jubal Early's brigade of Confederate infantry was also stationed here, since the position was critical to Lee's defensive line. Another key spot in this sector was the high ground just east of a small church belonging to the Dunkers. The German Baptist brethren were known as the Dunkers because of their form of baptism. For years here, they had met in a private home. In 1851, though, farmer Samuel Mumma had donated a plot of land on the western edge of his property for a church, and the small clapboard building had been completed in 1853. The Dunker Church would be a prominent landmark during the upcoming battle. It sat at the junction of the north-south running Hagerstown Turnpike and the Smoketown Road, which slanted in from the northeast. It was the height of the land here that was important, since if the Federals seized this spot and placed their artillery here, they could enfilade the entire Confederate defensive line north of Sharpsburg with their fire and make Lee's position untenable. The terrain here favored the defense. The direct line of approach to the church from the north was a corridor of open ground some 400 to 500 yards wide, which ran between two woodlots, both initially held by Confederate troops. The east wood was about 300 yards northeast of the church, covering the Smoketown Road. On the opposite side of the corridor, the much larger west wood jutted 300 yards forward of the church along the western side of the Hagerstown Turnpike, then angled west. Between the woodlots, the approach was obstructed by a large cornfield owned by a farmer named Miller, which filled most of the ground between the turnpike and the east wood and was perhaps a quarter of a mile deep. From the right flank of Jackson's sector, the Confederate battle line turned south. The hinge was marked by the roulette farm buildings. James Longstreet would command the right of Lee's line. There was a roadblock covering the road up from the middle bridge, as well as infantry covering the front of Sharpsburg. And then south of the town, the main line of battle followed the line of the high ground down to where Thomas Munford's cavalry guarded the lower Antietam to the point where it entered the Potomac. In this sector, a mile or more to the east of the main line, was a brigade of rebel infantry holding the hill that looked down on the Rohrbach Bridge. Although there was the possibility that position overlooking the bridge could be outflanked from the south if the enemy jumped the Antietam at a crossing point known as Snavely's Ford, the position was nevertheless a strong one, and if reinforced, it could have served as an anchor for the right end of Lee's line. But Lee's force was so thin on the ground in this sector that it seemed better to use that lone brigade as more of an outpost to disrupt and delay any federal move against the southern flank, after which it would have to fall back on the rest of the division on the high ground south of Sharpsburg. At any rate, it was critical to the defense that this southern portion of Lee's line remain in Confederate control to keep open the road to Bottler's Ford. George McClellan's tactical problem in preparing for battle was, in some ways, more complex and difficult than Lee's. 
Little Mac had to plan and execute an offensive battle on ground of the enemy's choosing with an army whose commanders and major units had little experience in working together. In addition, McClellan was going up against a Confederate commander who had proven himself from the Seven Days to Second Manassas to be aggressive and clever. Although George McClellan had commanded the Army of the Potomac for more than a year, all told, he had never both planned and personally directed a major battle. In all the principal battles of the Peninsula Campaign, from Seven Pines through the Seven Days, the Confederates had taken the tactical offensive. The Federals had responded reflexively to those thrusts, and McClellan himself had either conveniently removed himself from the battlefields or had not exercised tactical control of those clashes. And then more recently, at South Mountain, McClellan had again let his lieutenants direct the actual fighting for the passes. Antietam, therefore, would be the first major battle that Little Mac planned and conducted from start to finish. Yeah, so, you know, no pressure. Uh, There's actually been a great deal of debate over whether McClellan did, in fact, have a definite plan for fighting the Battle of Antietam, and if he did have a plan, just what it was. But we're going to save that discussion for next time. There is one final point we wanted to make in this episode, though, and it has to do with McClellan's state of mind after South Mountain. As we said previously on the podcast, Little Mac had viewed his army's successes at South Mountain as both a strategic victory and a personal vindication. But here's the important point. Robert E. Lee's decision to throw down the gauntlet at Antietam all but nullified the effect of South Mountain as victory and vindication for McClellan. With Lee making a stand at Antietam, it was therefore necessary for McClellan, as he wrote to his wife, to show that, quote, I can fight battles and win them, end quote. As Little Mac would note in his official report, under the canons and customs of the military profession, a general who brought his army face-to-face with an enemy was expected to give battle and was suspect if he declined to do so. That point was driven home by two telegrams that reached McClellan late on the 15th and on the afternoon of the 16th. The first was from Abraham Lincoln in response to Little Mac's message claiming he had won a great victory at South Mountain. The president said, God bless you and all with you. Destroy the rebel army if possible. Now McClellan resented the second part of that message, which ignored his claim of a major success and repeated Lincoln's nagging demand for greater efforts for more complete victories. The second telegram was Old Winfield Scott's reply to Little Mac's not-so-subtle boast that he had bested an enemy army commanded by R.E. Lee. But instead of acknowledging McClellan's accomplishment, this telegram from Scott echoed Lincoln's judgment that Little Mac's task was only half-finished. So all of that's to say that with Lee's decision to make a stand at Sharpsburg, McClellan's South Mountain balloon had been popped, and now he had to fight a new battle to vindicate his character and military genius. Okay, so we wanted to be sure to point that out, since it's often overlooked. But as I mentioned just a moment ago, we'll wait until next week 
to look at Little Mac's plan for winning this new battle he had to fight. If he really had a plan, that is. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Battle of Antietam, The Bloodiest Day by Ted Alexander. This book is part of the History Press's Civil War Sesquicentennial series, and we think that with this particular title in the series, the author, the chief historian of the Antietam National Battlefield, deserves credit for not just focusing on the action during the battle, but by looking at how the fighting impacted the civilians of Sharpsburg. And then he also discusses the efforts to preserve the battlefield as a hallowed spot. So that's The Battle of Antietam, The Bloodiest Day by Ted Alexander. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. You can also head over to the website if you would like to sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. Just yesterday, we released the 50th members episode, so we were glad that finally worked out. And we're glad that this past week, Nicholas, Jean, and Jim decided to enlist and become the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade. Thanks, guys. Thanks also to Steve from Massachusetts for his donation to the podcast this past week. Yep, thanks. We always appreciate those donations. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.